Welcome to A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And this is David Clow. Now, David, I have a tradition, and for this week, it's very important. Instead of me telling the audience who you are, you have the floor, because I don't think I would be able to do you justice in describing you. And I'd probably screw it up, so go um, to town. Well, the best description would be the description that a young Venezuelan person gave to the other people in the room at a hotel we were at over uh, my recent stay in Venezuela, and they said that I was an activist, an activist, whatever that means to whomever. I guess that would be the, the easiest way to encapsulate what I do. I'm active. In the way of standing up for people, perhaps, or political ideas? People, animals, the environment, whatever, wherever I find a situation where I see someone with power, exercising it over someone without it. I think a lot of people these days can get behind something like that. There's a lot of, a lot more political activism, probably because of the connection we have through the internet. That's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're also the owner of this place, the hub, right? Yeah, well, I lease the building, yeah, but uh, I guess the hub itself is my creation. I, uh, this is actually the second location. We were at uh, another location on East Main Street mm-hmm. in 2015. And uh, yeah, this place is a lot bigger and it's more capable to hold the events that we were hoping to hold at the old place. And, and here we are. Yes. Yeah. It is big. You, mm-hmm. you see it in photos or you see it from the outside and you realize it's a big building. But uh, when you get inside, it is, there is a lot that can be done. And, and I, there is a lot of community events that go on here. I've heard of you know, artists getting together or just bands and, and things like that. Yeah, Saturday night we have, uh, I think it's eight bands coming in. And it's, they're mostly artists that you're not going to see uh, you know, on the floating stage or anywhere else in town because... It's a little heavier music, or it's a little bit, you know, different than the mainstream stuff that people want to see with their family and kids at, you know, the Canada Day events or whatever. So, it's providing a, a utility that that's requisite, I think, in a place like this because not everybody wants to attend those events. You know, some people would rather do things that are a little, a little more artistic or a little bit more cutting edge, say, perhaps. It's an extension of freedom, really being able to express yourself however you choose and not be limited to not having a venue. Well, yeah, the idea behind this is a DIY venue, which is the idea behind DIY venues is are huge. It's huge in places like Los Angeles or, you know, places where there's a lot of people that need to do things on their own and they just get together and they do music shows. It's often a punk thing where punk bands get together and they just, you know, occupy a space and that's kind of what is happening here in a way it's kind of exciting i mean there's certain things i didn't expect to see like i can see a, a bench with some weights and is that just for your own use or do other people yeah, come no, in here that, that's yeah no that's mine <laughs> i don't know like it's it's my space so initially when i took over the space i was thinking that it would transform into a lot different place than it has. I was expecting a lot more community support uh, and now it's basically to the point where it's just my space and 
you know the the guys that come and do the the music shows when they come in we clear this space pretty well empty and this is the back room for the band and but right now it's just my personal space that's why my stuff is here the community involvement that you were hoping or the the original idea what why why do you think that didn't well, take off what was the the original plan was just more more activity than just music like what well the, what the was sign, the goal and why aren't we there okay well the <laughs> sign that i put up where vance badaway's name is right now uh i uh because that was the space that i was in before he he got in there and i was running for member of parliament and i just thought there's going to be a lot of money that's going to be spent on a campaign I figured that if I wanted to be a different type of politician, I was going to run a different type of campaign. So that's where I got the idea of creating the hub. And it was a way to try to prove something to the community. I wanted to say, I could be putting billboards up, I could be doing this or that, but instead I'm, I'm giving the money back to the community. I've leased this really awesome space, we're going to do music shows, we're going to do art events, we're going to do all kinds of really awesome, awesome things. One of the things that really, two events that really st stuck with me was uh, one young lady, she was nine years old, she had his autism and she did her own art show and it was CHCH News came and it was an amazing event and I was, that was initially when we first opened up so I thought, you know, it's going to explode, it's going to be a wonderful thing, people are going to catch on and it's going to work and then it didn't and we did another event there for a lady here named Marianne, Marianne Forget, or Forget, I'm not sure if it, how to pronounce it exactly, uh, but she passed away recently, and to know that I gave her the hub, the space to use for her, uh, for her art show was, it's something I'm extremely proud of, and it's something that uh, the hub was supposed to be, but our sign out front where the Vance Badaway is now, it said, free coffee, community activism, art, music free venue so that's how i opened it up and so that's where the funding came from from money that i was going to spend in political pursuits i i never really entertained the idea of becoming mentor member of parliament actually or becoming mayor what i wanted to do was to be active in in my community and to provide a voice to those being exploited like i was referring to the people that are powerless uh, this is a small town but there's a lot of po power politics going on here, and uh, I've, I've withdrawn from it now, but I'm still going to be a voice of truth. But people would come and they'd say, well, what are you selling? And I'd say, well, we're not selling anything. They're like, well, there must be a, you must be making money somewhere. And I'd say, no, I'm not. There's, there's no revenue. This, we're, not, you know, we're not registered as a nonprofit, but we're not profiting. And people just couldn't believe it they they just they you know they looked at me dumbfounded and so right away I became adversarial I became someone that was doing something wrong as opposed to doing something right you're the square was, peg in the round hole yeah it was just this to them they had to be hyper vigilant because it's impossible right that someone would ever give of themselves so and what started as the loftiest aspiration became where I'm at right now, like having to physically defend myself from insane people in the streets of Welland because it's just morphed into this insane thing where I've become vilified to the point where people literally want to shoot the messenger. 
you do have a an online presence or your name is known online like more more so than anybody probably no how am i going to word this you have a very good online presence however it's not a good image in most of the case like there's there's a lot of negative out there about you and obviously mm-hmm. we've seen the video of you getting knocked down <laughs> yes. which there's a huge amount of of negative attention and there's a very simple reason for that uh when i first started my activism i would go to places and i would be telling people things that they didn't want to hear and one example that i like to use is a place called likely bc where i went to visit and they had the largest environmental disaster in canadian history it was a tailings pond that ruptured and I went to the actual site of the spill where the toxic waste was everywhere on the ground. And I documented it and we took samples and I put a really awesome video together on my YouTube that's got thousands of views and it just blew up in this tiny little town and people were doing the same things to me there that they're doing to me here because to them, their whole livelihood depended upon that mine that destroyed that lake and that is still continuing to poison them each day. They, they dumped their tailings into that, uh, into that Lake Polly, Mount Polly uh, Lake and uh, there's uh, another lake right there. And the two lakes are the source of their drinking water. So they didn't want to hear what I had to say. They didn't want to hear someone saying, you're drinking poison. But someone had to tell them and that's what I did. So I became a villain to them and I'm still a villain to them I still pe- people still attack me online there was a bunch of Facebook pages made about me another instance was I went to uh, uh, an indigenous community uh, up in uh, Iskit BC which is uh, uh, almost like by Juneau Alaska and they were doing uh, a blockade but it wasn't a blockade like other blockades where I visited where they were actually doing a work stoppage or something like that. They were at, the, at a mine that they were apparently stopping the work at and they were soliciting donations, huge amount of money and there were these sweet little old ladies and when I got there I realized that they were about a kilometer from the actual mine and I said, you know, what are you guys doing here? This is, this is not a blockade and they said, oh, it's definitely a blockade. And I said, but no, it's not a blockade. It's, it's just not a blockade. And so they got all mad at me. And immediately when I got there, I could tell things were weird. I just, my intuition flared up and I was like, nobody's offering me food. Nobody's offering me drinks. Nobody's doing anything very nice. And it's like, something was up. And it's just like, well, they were super hyper vigilant because they were in the wrong. And they knew they were in the wrong. And they knew that they were selling out the rights of their land to uh, a gold mining company that that was responsible for the tailings pond rupture where I just was. So I exposed all those those little old ladies and the hatred that I experienced and the threats of violence were just astronomical, way, way worse than what I deal with here in Welland. In this instance, what were these people guilty of doing? Accepting money or colluding with Well, they were the lying mine? to the public. They were they telling were. people they were blockading a mine to get themselves a better bartering position with the company that they ultimately sold off to. Hmm. Company owned by Anne Marie Edwards, uh, it's a gold mining company that 
destroys northern BC and destroys our forests so that they run these electric these power lines out to the middle of nowhere so that they can just tear forest up and pollute the land and it's just horrific what they do there so but a lot of these native communities end up taking a lot of money for it and when you get to those native communities like I visited many of them most of them you know treat here here this is this is bear that was you know just cured or whatever I'm eating this amazing meat and drinking drinks I've never tasted before and all these wonderful things but like I said when I got to that community it was very different and that's why I travel around the world to go and see things for myself do you think their motivations really were nefarious or do you think that Hold on, maybe they one sec, brother. Oh. Che no he's chewing his leash I'm sorry about that <laughs> do you believe that their motivations were nefarious or perhaps their motivations were just trying to you know better themselves or their community well, and they didn't, they didn't I, don't think, I don't think it was malicious at no. all it's a it was a pragmatic decision that they've made just like many other communities I don't hold it I don't hold it against them they were doing what they had to do but that was irrelevant to me I had no there was no I didn't make a decision I was there I'm not I'm not saying do I or do I not tell the truth I just told the truth and that's it and then about a year or two after that, it all became public that everything I said was absolutely right and they ended up selling out to that, that gold mine. It's got to feel like you are justified in that case. No, I've never actually repeated that till now. No. I've never told anybody, but yeah, I'm not the I told you so type because no. when I'm right, things are horrifically wrong for everyone. So after the news came out, were you still, like, did the vilification stop or were you still completely... Oh, I, I suspect that... Uh, well, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be invited back to their community, if that's what you mean. Or, nor would I be invited to any of the activism that goes on in that community, or like that, you know, northern BC stuff, or, you know, people will know, think about that all the time. They'll know that I, I'm not to be trusted to be quiet, but that's fine. That's a role that I've taken on. I have heroes in this planet that I look up to and that's people that I've always respected or learned to respect or grown to respect and two of them I, I met in person and the, one of them is Dr. Guy McPherson and he's a famous climatologist, University of Arizona professor that lost his job and his livelihood and everything because he told the truth about what's happening with the climate right now and another one is Derek Jensen who is a, a famous author uh, anarcho-primitivist like myself who's uh, doing whatever he can to save our situation and both of them are being vilified in a way that I am but far far greater far worse because they're telling the truth and they're making change in fact both of those men actually think the other one is some kind of federal agent <laughs> there to get the other one and they and so I've been bridging a bit of a dialogue between the two of them I I went and saw a doctor met with the uh, state at dr. Guy McPherson's compound in Belize last year and filmed a, a really interesting interview with him for one of my document documentary projects I went and stayed at, in Crescent City California to meet Derek Jensen and then the third person who I consider a, a, a hero of mine as someone that I want to be like and who I work toward being like is uh, someone you guys might respect as well and know and Julian Assange yes. and he is uh, he's being extradited to the US right now yeah. with I think like 17 counts of espionage or whatever 
after spending, I don't know, like nearly a decade in the Ecuadorian embassy, all for telling the truth. I do have respect for whistleblowers. That's and that's what I am. That's I'm nothing more than a whistleblower. I've never created any kind of anything. I travel the world. I've been in 19 different countries. I've never seen needles laying on the ground. I've never seen flocks of junkies running around like I see here. I've never seen the amount of garbage and trash like I see here. I've never seen the lack of recreational or vocational or any kind of extracurricular activities like I see here for people. I've never seen the amount of corruption and the level of intermingling between pedophiles and drug dealers and city council members as I see in this community. So why do people hate me? Because I tell them the truth. They're living in, a, in an infested community. Yeah, we're rat infested, but we're also infested with, uh, I'm writing a book about and the title is called is a family poisoned and i really believe that we're all our brains are just poisoned around here people are literally there's so much drugs and so much uh transgenerational trauma that people have inherited here that they just can't escape it and the iotrogenic <laughs> effects of their their solutions their their medicines they provide the side effects are a million times worse and people are just literally, they've lost control. They don't even think straight around here anymore. And it's like, do people want to hear that? No. People never like to be told that they're living in essentially a shithole. And I mean, <laughs> that's one of my exact quotes. Did you guys yeah. get that directly from me? No, actually. But I mean, yeah, I, was, I think I'm the only person ever in the history of the Welland Tribune to be definitely the mayoral candidate to be quoted as saying Welland is a shithole. <laughs> It, people don't like to, to face the truth sometimes, especially like everybody turns a blind eye to things now and then. And if you've been living here your whole life and you do have some pride about the region, it hurts. It hurts to hear that, you know, things aren't as good as perhaps you thought they were. There's not some kind of, you know, community gathering going on that, you know, keeps everybody tied together like perhaps there once was many decades ago. There was. We, I say it all the time. We used to, when I was growing up on these streets, we used to have. I'd pedal my bicycle around and find a corn roast going on or some kind of really cool event that would welcome me just as, you know, some bratty little kid pedaling around on his bike. It was like there was so, so much more to offer people when I was growing up. And even then, with all the horrific things that happened to me growing up, I still, I still know that it was so, so much better than it is now for people. And when I, I left Welland at 16 years old, this is another thing no one knows about me. I haven't lived in Welland since I was 16. I left and I went to a young offender jail in Simcoe, Spruce Dale Youth Center, and I did 15 months there. And when I got out of there, I moved to Oshawa with my family and I did my grade 13 at uh, Paul Dwyer High School in Oshawa. And I had a motorcycle in an accident uh, in Muskoka a year after that so I haven't been back since so the things that people say about me though I remember David Cloud that's from when I was 16 years old or younger that's what these people know wow you did talk about getting into trouble a lot when you were younger I suppose yeah on I was your YouTube channel I was the baddest kid you were gonna find like <laughs> I fought everybody I set things on fire all around town I was like I trashed houses I did the worst possible things I had the worst conduct disorder possible now having a psychology and philosophy degree, I can look back and analyze and introspect my behavior and realize what was going on. And 
I was being abused by a pedophile, a local cocaine dealer while I grew, was growing up. My father was an alcoholic. I had domestic issues at home. I had a million things going against me growing up here, but I also had a wonderful, loving, intelligent mother as the prime resiliency factor behind my ability to, to counteract all those other things. And I came back to Welland in 2015 because my mother had lung and brain cancer. I started taking care of her and I ran for member of parliament just to show my mom what I was capable of doing and to tell a little bit of the truth that I knew existed. When I came back, I was disgusted at the state of this city, just horrified as I am now. And I was vocal about it, but I was a hell of a lot sweeter about it back then because my mother was alive and I hadn't been tainted by all the people here over these past years. My mother died. I left. I lost the election, obviously, after destroying the other candidates in all the debates. Left town for a while. Had uh, a wonderful time in Costa Rica doing my sea turtle conservation. And then I still felt a compulsion to return because of all the people that said that I was shirking some duty. So I came back to run for mayor to just give that last argument that I hoped would arrive at a conclusion that people would accept. And I gave the hub another shot and I gave it another try and nobody listened. I saw a friend, a childhood friend of mine, Albert Garofalo being bullied by the mayor. I saw the mayor accepting a huge amounts of money from the guy that's creating that toxic waste dump behind them all created. And I wanted to voice that. I wanted to tell people what was going on politically here in this situation. You can look at, the, and, I'm, and I'm not saying anything that's slanderous, because you could look at Mayor Campion's uh, expenses from the, both of the last two elections, and you can see that prime way developments are, are the ones that, that contributed to his campaign. Somebody paid for those billboards. Mm -hmm. And I had to tell those things. And I had to tell people that there's a reason why our friends and family and people we love are dying from overdoses. There's a reason why people are sick and in why they're depressed and why they're hurt and why they're dying. I have a childhood friend, multiple of them, that used to be the coolest, the coolest guys around that now I see walking around, swatting at flies around their head and they have no more teeth in their face and they're just skin and bone. And I could have been there. If I stayed here, I would have been there. And I'm here because I don't want any more generations to end up like those guys that I see walking down the street that are, they're, they're not them anymore. I want to grab them and save them. But they're gone. They're dead. They might as well be dead. They're shells. Maybe we should talk about solutions. I know you've talked about quite a few. And a lot of stuff has to do with like the Internet of Things and, and things like that. But I don't... A lot of people point to the industry that used to be around here and it's all gone. Well, you can't, my dad, my dad said, used to say something, you can't make chicken soup from chicken shit. And I always loved that because it's absolutely true. And no, we're not going to be able to work with the past to try and recreate the future. It's just never going to work. And the, the solutions that I was putting forward to people were just too advanced and too foreign for anyone to accept. You don't think persistence might be the way to go as far as introducing new ideas? To There's a guy in Welland named John Watt, and he's just like me. He was probably just like me when he was my age. 
And he's the most persistent, most adamant guy you're going to find. And he took on Welland like I did. And sorry, John, but he's not in the best of shape anymore. And uh, I'd love to be persistent, but I don't fight losing battles. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that Welland is a losing battle. I, oh, nothing would make me happier and nothing would make my mother happier in heaven than for some switch to be flipped and for things to change and for this place to become what it was supposed to become and for us to band together and arrive at the real solutions that we require. But I think those are a little bit too lofty at this point and nothing ever in life have I ever considered lofty as far as aspirations go. It seems like one thing that could definitely change the city is if you could get more people working. It's, it's the old jobs argument. There's a very high percentage of people around here that use <coughs> social assistance programs and, and ODSP and things like that. Do you think maybe that's a, a good place to start, having more employment? Well, sure, of course. That would be an awesome solution, but the solutions that I was offering were ones that were ones that we could implement today, where, you know, arriving at food and energy security, arriving at safety in the community, and not by appealing to anyone, do it by doing it ourselves, right? Because the solutions to the woes of the world in the future are decentralized solutions because we all, despite being members of one big community, are all dealing with our own particular issues. Like I said, I've never been anywhere else where I see needles lying around like here. Decentralizing it sort of leads to a more, less traditional political belief where you believe that a government should take care of things. It's down to the individual at that point. Well, I'm an anarchist. Yeah, well, it sounds a little bit like you were, so that makes sense. <laughs> well, the, the it's an interesting view to take because almost there is a little bit of that in the community, at least these days. I, I see all over Facebook, you know, somebody comes and steals something off of someone's front lawn, exactly. every the community's trying to do something about it. That's it's, vigilante justice. Yeah. Well, when your police officers are killing or shooting each other in the streets because of the the level of dysfunction that we have going on there, vigilante justice seems our only resort. And that's why I went out in the street and confronted uh, the man that sells the drugs to the people that are dying, the man that probably uh, still gives the drugs to my ex-friends that are storming up and down the street yelling at invisible people. Mm -hmm. Someone's giving them those, those people those drugs. I, I guarantee I'm the very only, the first and only mayoral candidate that would ever confront the worst drug dealer in the whole city out in the street. It's no wonder these people want to attack me. It's a, it's a big thing to stand up to somebody like that, even having casual interactions with some of these people. Especially when you can't stand up. Yeah. It's totally fair. I mean, you could be doing something as innocuous as walking down the street and get harassed by somebody that might be out of their mind and, you know, not really fully well, aware of what they're doing, but it's, it's, listen, it's I, difficult I, to do. That, that house across the street right next to the bakery, that building, I see 25 new people per day that are so long gone, that are so fucked up on drugs, methamphetamine and opioids and who knows what else that I just, I was just in what is considered one of the most dangerous countries in the world and I felt a thousand times safer than I do right here. Really? And I don't lie, buddy. 
Like, I have no reason to lie about shit. You're speaking of Venezuela? Yes. I don't know what Venezuela has as far as a drug problem goes, but there's a lot of political uprising. I didn't see any on. drugs at all. No. I wasn't looking, but I didn't see any. And I'm pretty keen as far as that goes. That's true, and you don't really need to look here to find You don't stuff. at all need to. So that's the difference. No, you have, to, you, you, it, you have to literally bury your head in the sand to miss it. What do you think that other cities in the region perhaps have going for them that Welland doesn't? You have to give people something to do with themselves. You know, so children, have, children have to do something. And if children don't do something with their time, they become dysfunctional adults like everybody else here. So maybe community organization would be something that we need to get kids involved into? Well, More sports teams? Sports were one of, the, one of the huge resiliency factors in my life. I played box lacrosse for the Pelham Raiders, and I played uh, for the Welland Tigers, AAA hockey. And thank goodness for that. You know, that was a, a, huge, a huge benefit to my development. That's going to be key, but it's, it's got to be more than that. Because once... When I, when I was 16 years old, the time between I quit hockey and I went to jail was about a two-year span or something like that. Hmm. So I turned from being sweet little boy. Well, that's also when all the bad things happened to me, but I turned from a sweet little boy to a malicious little demon hmm. in a very short span of time. You seem really introspective. In one, um, you talk about that two-year time frame. There, do you remember the the first thing like the catalyst in those two years like what made you go from the sweet to the sour well I was always a, uh, I pushed every boundary my whole life you since can't I was, tell since I was a little boy I've always known that that was my shtick that was what I was going to do and uh, to the point it just turned from being so I always say that I'm such a rebel that in, at this point in my life, I have to become like a saint to continue to rebel. So I started as just a bratty little kid and then it just turned into a further rebellion. And all I was doing was what I'm continuing to do to this day. And it was resisting a world that I disagreed with. I didn't agree with anything. I remember being a little boy looking around thinking, where the fuck are all the responsible adults? And now that I'm an, an, an adult, it's incumbent upon me to be that responsible one. And sadly, I can only think of a handful of people in this whole entire world that I would consider responsible adults. The ones I was looking for when I was a little boy. But I'm definitely one of them. And I haven't gained enough traction yet, but I will. People think that, people in Welland think that Welland's the whole world. It's not. It's, it's not even a bleep on my radar. I did what I had to do because I want to prove things to my family. I'm here to try and mend things with my family. It was uh, uh, my my mother's passing was very traumatic for all involved. I fought against the doctors who wanted to over medicate my mother. I, I fought to keep her alive for three years. I remember pushing her wheelchair around in my wheelchair because she had gone completely diverged from my entire family, and it was just the two of us together, you know, battling against the whole hospital and the whole medical industry and it was it was a wonderful time, but if Welland is only a blip on your radar, you must be thinking of doing much bigger things, of course, and your documentary sort of 
hint towards that. Is it centralized around anything? Or are you thinking global here? Well, I, I, the only solution for our potential survival is global remedy, and it's going to be a revolution-style thing. And right now, I I know this might sound like someone that is delusional for someone to say that I feel capable, I feel responsible for taking on this role that I don't see anyone else taking on currently in the whole world. That would seem delusional had I were, had I been saying that without all the intermittent steps along the way that has proven that to be my requisite objective in life. And when I say that, when I first started reading, I was out in front of the White House at a protest where I brought oil from the Mississippi Barrier Islands to uh, to the White House. I eventually brought them back to England on a plane and it was 22 kilograms of tar logs that BP oil spilt in the Barrier Islands and I picked it up off the beach next to some children. And I brought it there and when I got there I was talking to a bunch of professors that were like kneeling down on the ground all listening to me and I thought to myself these are university professors just like mouth agape listening to my story and one of them came back to me after and handed me a phone and said somebody wants to talk to you and I said okay so I took the cell phone and the guy picked up the phone and he said I'm my name's Derek Jensen and I'm part of this group called Deep Green Resistance and I, I've written some books and I'm wondering if you'll let me send you a book and I said sure I'd love to read your book and he sent me his book and it was like whoa it totally just changed my life as so many things have along this this trip and I had to immediately go and spend time with him and where he lived. When I first started hearing about Dr. Guy McPherson, I had to go and meet him. So I drove, he was in Los Angeles, I saw him perform, uh, uh, speaking at a, at, a, at a university there. And uh, he said, come to Belize and come stay at my compound. And how I, I had to. How difficult is it to build such a rapport with these people where you get invited to go do these kind of things? Cause I think a lot of us want to be active, but we think it's hard to do. Well, nobody believes these people. You know, it's not like I've heard of McPherson before, so I know that he's at least well known. Oh, he's he's I don't know if I would say famous or infamous. I don't know what, but he's uh, he's not like you know some famous actor or something where people no. where he's going to have some entourage or anything like that. All these people are very easily easily introduced to you by through a friend or. However, I don't know. Hmm. I believe that a lot of the reasons why people hate me is because of the cognitive dissonance around what you were just referring to. It seems insurmountable, almost. The cognitive dissonance of, of what, specifically? Well, realizing that you have, there, that there's some responsibility that you have to go beyond just raising children and not being a drug addict or whatever, you know, the, the basic requirements. There's so people's ability to separate themselves from the problem, essentially. Well, you have, like you brought up introspection. Yeah. Do you introspect? All the time. Do you think most people do? I think they do. 
maybe not about the same things or <laughs> or the same level of importance, at least on a humanity scale, but everybody thinks and about well, themselves and again, within themselves. Then we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's, it's true. When you arrive at that top, I believe that once you start, it's a slippery slope anyways, once you start, it, if you're really doing it, you'll arrive at like, so when the G20 hit Toronto, I was living in a city place condo right next to Sky Dome with a beautiful girlfriend. I had my own dock on the Toronto Island uh, in their marina with my jet ski there and I would camp out there all the time. My life was like just perfect in every single way. I was going toward getting my doctorate. I was like just living life exactly how I wanted, but I was a hardcore conservative Stephen Harper lover and I was a social Darwinist hateful superficial piece of shit and I was what well and produced I was racist misogynist I was everything that I've learned to hate and I had to have my rights arbitrarily removed I had to realize that the freedom that I that was contingent on everything that I accepted was not real and so I, right away I started googling what, what's who the fuck are the G20 What's, what's really going on here? And the next thing you know, I'm a radical anarchist and trying to save us all. You speak of the hierarchy of needs, and I guess it makes sense if people around here are worried perhaps about addiction issues or even, you know, food or, or simple things like that. What did you have in your life that satisfied your needs that you, way you could elevate yourself and think about bigger problems? Well, I'm broken. That's my problem. I, nothing is okay. Nothing's ever been okay. So I was like, I was never willing to accept any of it. That's what my book is all about. I was like so traumatized and so familiar with trauma that the things that... So Greta, the Greta, I can't pronounce her last name, but the, the girl who does the climate strike, the activist, the young lady, who has uh, uh, autism or Asperger's, one of the two, I can't remember which it is. I think it's autism. And she said, I don't have a disability or some kind of problem. I'm actually, I think I'm better. Or she says something, I don't know, she doesn't. She says it a hell of a lot more eloquently. But the point is that she doesn't have the same things blocking whatever the whole world is, has blocking their sight to be able to see what the real problems are. She can just see it and she can just say it. And that's part of what we consider a disability or a mental disorder. And I don't have that either. I don't have any barrier that says, don't, don't tell that person that. As soon as that, if I do ever have that, I just blurt it out even, even faster. And I've been like that my whole life. And it's not gonna stop now. I do know a few people with autism spectrum disorder and all of them are high functioning, but it's interesting because it, it does get rid of sort of uh, their ability to pick up on maybe some social cues that would cause other people to hold back and not say things that they otherwise should. But, you know, yeah, I do have friends that will just say and speak their mind. So if you combine that with somebody who is an activist, you, I guess you get the, the truth, hopefully, more well, often than not. Well, when you first start studying psychology, one of, the, one of the first studies you hear about is this guy that had this spike that was jammed through his head. Yes. And he was like, he just blurted shit out for the rest of his life. And I don't know, maybe he lost part of his prefrontal lobe or something. Yes, like that. exactly. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that maybe I got dinged in the forehead or something. <laughs> my whole head's covered in scars from my childhood. So 
I probably smashed my, was jumping on the bed as a child and smashed my face off some steel radiator and ever since then I've been just blurting out the truth <laughs> at, at the, every detriment. So I've lost all the relationships in my life have suffered hugely because of this. And you'll find that Dr. Guy McPherson says the exact same thing. All his relationships have suffered because of his, he's a lot like me in that way. Derek Jensen is also a lot like me in the way that he had to suffer under, a, you know, a, an abusive father situation, a, you know, a really uh, dominating patriarchal situation at home, and that's why he fights against this system. And I consider myself a feminist. Someone just said to me recently, "How can you consider yourself a feminist when you, you can be so mean to women?" And I. I've been really grappling with that over these past days because the same thing was brought up about those little old native ladies. How could you be a feminist and then rat out those little old native ladies? And it's like, well, I didn't look under their skirt to see if they were ladies or not. I never took that into consideration. I was feminist enough to give them equal footing on every single level. And if someone's a liar, then I'm going to call them a liar. If someone is a an abusive person or someone's exploiting a relationship or someone's polluting the earth or whatever is going on it's not a gendered issue it could never be it's no. it's a, such a wider scope it's i don't know that's fair the um i guess it, it, this is the most extreme end of it really but you're talking about abuse and, and things like that leading to people sort of maybe going towards the anarchist view of things or or at least fr fighting for the freedom of others. I think I, I heard something today about uh, Gigi Allen, and he is probably one of the most extreme examples you could ever find about that. I don't know if you know much about him. No, I don't know. Okay, he, he was more on the artist side. He was he did very strange and disgusting things as performance art, but but yeah, he he told a very similar story for any of those who know who he is. I'm not going to dwell on him too much. It's a, an interesting thing. What gets people up and motivated? Mm hmm. I consider myself lucky I don't really have those traumas in my life, although I still perhaps am looking for some kind of meaning. There's always things to be active about or things to care about. Well, There's one of the big things that uh, is one of the key features of my book that I'm writing right now is about epigenetics. And it's about how, if you look at so someone like Audrey Hepburn, she is symbolic of this generation of, of children that were born frail and petite. And it was a result of the potato famine. It was a, a whole generation that was born as a result, born different as a result of just one generation of suffering. Mm -hmm. We didn't know much about this prior to 2015 before decoding the genome and really understanding microbiology like we do now. And it's still very nascent, but we have proven that trauma is passed on epigenetically. It is, it is something that we suffer. So we can't, we can't poison ourselves and say, oh, Darwin said that it takes millions of years to change us. That, that is antiquated. Just because Darwin's name is on most of the evolutionary biology buildings you're going to find, that it's going to have to come off, okay? Things, we have to update our understanding. And with this socialism, capitalism debate, 
It's, you know, Marx, we're talking about a debate that's hundreds of, only a couple hundred years old. We're talking about things that, and that's how long it takes for us as a society to really, for this information to become common knowledge. It takes even longer sometimes. It's like, and so this, this new understanding that we have about the effects of trauma and how that's passed on immediately and how that mutates us and how these things are, you know, when I first started talking about this, I didn't know anything about this. I was like, well, what's a mutagen? What's a teratogen? What's a clastogen? I didn't understand. A lot any of biology terms. I'm sorry? There's a lot of biology terms definitely to learn. There, I think there's a big distinction too, perhaps, of epigenetics and also psychological factors. Like for instance, Holocaust survivors, a lot of them do pass on many of their traumas to their children, albeit probably more on the psychological side. The, the way that they act and talk to their children might be different than how a, a mother and father might that did not go through the Holocaust. But definitely stuff like the Irish potato famine, there are epigenetic factors that essentially change the uh, perhaps the ability of the future generations to gain or lose weight well, and, and things like that. It's nature nurture and there's no d differentiating the two. And what we have and the, how this applies here in Welland and why I'm fighting so hard about this is because this, this hatred, this every, like all these meme battles and everything. I think it's built into our genes. It is, and we're <laughs> mutating ourselves further. We're, we're, we're literally poisoning our brains. There's a reason, okay, you brought up the, the video of me being attacked. Yes. I want to address that. Did you, did you see the video? I think I've seen it. It's in the far edges of my memory, but okay. I'm not sure. It's recent. Yeah, no, it was just a couple of days ago. There's my, uh, my yeah, elbow. Yeah, probably didn't see that. My elbow wound is still quite fresh. Oh, lovely. So what happened was I was having a coffee out in front of the cheesecake place uh, with Phil Gladman and uh, an old man named Bob from who was a member of the Navy, the English Navy in World War II. And he was, t I guess it was World War II or something. And he was telling us this amazing stories. And then all of a sudden somebody came up from behind and they put their arm around me. And all I felt was like, I thought at first it was just maybe a friend joking. I was like, mm, someone's you know, playing a little prank or whatever. And then the next thing I felt myself being lifted out of the chair and slammed down to the ground. And then all of a sudden I just fell asleep. I like blanked out. It's never, I used to fight for fun. Uh, I was into MMAR stuff. That was like my fun, and I've never been choked out in my life. No one's ever also, no one's ever attacked me from behind either. But it was uh, it was a first for me, definitely. So what you see in the video was a couple seconds later. I'm guessing when I came to, I jumped back in the wheelchair really fast and started chasing after the guy. And that's when he pulled out the phone. And he started filming me and yelling at me. And he, in the video, you can hear him talking about his one-year-old daughter and calling me a pedophile. Yep. And I've never been called a pedophile in my life. I've never been accused of being a pedophile. I've never even, never even been around kids. I'm not the biggest fan of kids because I'm a pretty hard guy and kids are innocent. And I don't like anybody having anything on me. And I always have something on other people because they're not innocent. So I can always be honest and hard with people. But kids, you can't be. They, when kids ask me a question, I remember during the mayoral campaign, I did a, uh, a talk at one of the elementary schools at the French school. And I was like so scared because 
I knew I had to just put up with everything. There was no defense, you know? You just have to be sweet with kids. But, and so I just don't have kids. I've never been around kids. If you're looking for pedophiles, they're going to be soccer coaches or doing whatever Hidden to be around kids. Sight. Yeah. I've never been around kids, nor do I have any intention of having kids or being around kids. So it's completely absurd. For, and for him, what, and he's saying, you're saying things to my, uh, to my one-year-old daughter. What do you say about a one-year-old baby? What do you say? Like, you know, be, you're gay, your kid's gay. Like, there's nothing you could possibly say about a one-year-old kid. So it's the most absurd thing that this guy would say that. And what it comes down to is this guy was on the Well and Memes page. He was one of the admins. The, the, uh, the uh, original admin of the page uh, removed this guy because he was doing too many wheelchair stuff and making fun of disabilities and then they ended up battling each other. So the guy had some hatred for me because he was no longer one of the admins on this one of these memes pages. And so he started all these other pages, Clow memes and all these other, I've told you before, there was sites made yes. about me before when I was doing my oil spill stuff and all that. So I've, I've been used to it. So I enjoy going on and, and getting involved in the banter and the, the throwing of insults back and forth. I find it comical. People think I'm not at home like going all nuts or whatever. I'm at home laughing so hard at all this stuff all the time. Some I find them, it. Some of them are really funny. Oh, it's, it's hilarious. No matter what you say, a lot of it's hilarious. A lot of it's very vulgar and, you know, but I still find it completely amusing. But anyways, this one guy started doing these memes that were just just mean-hearted and I don't even think people really liked it but so I found out who he was and then I'm like dude and then he's like inboxing me all these messages saying my life is wonderful and I'm rich and I have you know this beautiful wife and this kid and all this stuff and I'm and so his girlfriend started messaging a friend of mine or whatever and I ended up communicating and finding out that this guy is not even allowed near his kid or his wife I guess there's like a peace bond or whatever apparently addiction issues with this guy and violence or whatever and you can see from the video that he's a complete insane madman there there's no disputing that which is most likely because of drugs and he lives in a little attic apartment like the guys and he sits home every day and my me falling out of the wheelchair is the profile picture for the well and memes the fake one now the second one the real one is now called Only in Welland. Yes. There's, there's 14,000 people like that, but the one with 1,400, which this guy's just a copycat loser, like trying to replicate something that he'll never be able to replicate because the guy who actually does run the Welland memes is a really cool guy. He takes care of his life. He's got a wonderful family, mm -hmm. wonderful home. He's a really cool dude. And You're talking the original, like yes. Rob? Yeah, Only in Welland, yeah. And yeah. I've got nothing but the utmost respect for that yeah. guy because he weighs things, he thinks about things, he has nothing but the most benevolent wishes for Welland, I believe. And there's no mean-spiritedness to him. There's a handful of people in Welland, surprisingly, that have made their way through without any taint. And I think that he's one of them. He seems to me like a genuinely cool cat. A lot of times there's elements of truth, of course, that are posted about on, on the old Wellen, Melon Memes page, and it's just, you get the mix of comments where a lot of people will acknowledge that what is, you know, being joked about has truth to it, 
But there's so many people that just outright say, what are you doing? You're making this community worse by showing pictures of things that are actually Does happening. Does art duplicate life or is, you know, is it vice versa? It's an age-old argument, but you know, what do I do now? This guy's making memes about me every day. He's obvi- I, I, the police were involved. They came and did nothing. I'm like trying to get words out of my mouth and they're literally walking away and getting in their, in their car. Well, we don't have time, priority call. I'm like, dude, are you cops or what? They didn't even want to hear what was going on. Why did they I come said there's witnesses up there. This guy, uh, the, the guy that works at the cheesecake place, the two people that oh, run the cheesecake place would not tell the police what happened. Really? No, and, but one of the guys that worked there was willing to. I'm like, I'm like, to the cops, I'm like, guys, why don't you go and ask the guy that worked there that saw it? Oh, sorry, we don't have any time. So this is your hometown. This is why things are the way they are. This is why vigilante justice is the only solution here in this town right now. And when I say that, I don't mean flaming pitchforks. I mean getting together and getting people have, you know, we need to have like a, what do you call it? Like a community uh, force or whatever, where people just walk around in safety and numbers and just like do what the police should be doing and actually looking and keeping people doing crime and drugs. I would think, like, I was always growing up under the impression that if you're out in the street injecting a needle, that you're going to get arrested. No, you, you, you get pictures right taken, picture, you get pictures taken, and it's put on Facebook. Oh, Do you think it it's the right thing to be arrested for people with drug addiction issues? Not necessarily, no, of course not. I think there's got to be preventative measures taken, but once, once those people are at that point, the only solution for them in most cases, like those guys that I'm talking about, my childhood friends, 10 years ago, they should have been picked up and mm-hmm. taken to the mental ward and cleaned out and forced into a drug rehab program. Hey! David Cloud, we love you. I heard it. <laughs> Cheers and jeers, I'm getting both. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> 10 years ago, I guess. The issue is what about now, right? It's Well, he's gone now, that man's dead. That man is, uh, the two people that I'm referring to, my two good high school friends, are, uh... Jay! They're just, uh... They're not themselves anymore, so there's no, there's... You know, you'd have to go back in time to help them. It's a shame. And that sort of, um, hopelessness, I guess, is sort of what normalizes a lot of people using drugs out in the street. And I I see it in other cities, too, St. Catharines and, and elsewhere. And it's a learned helplessness. That's what I'm talking about. It's yeah. an intergenerational thing. So there be there is such interesting ground to study, at least from a biology perspective, if there is any truth to epigenetic factors playing into continued poverty, continued addiction problems, all these things within a city. Well, I'd say it's textbook at this point. It's uh, you're kind of taught what you know if you come from a, a household where you've seen you know, your your father get or your father's angry as he's coming home from work and he drinks a lot. They, they learn behaviors right? at that point, for sure. And it, it, it'll carry over to you. And, and stuff like alcoholism does, I would argue, probably have epigenetic factors. If you know, Even if you were entirely separated from a family that has alcohol issues, if you grow up and you might learn to abuse alcohol yourself independently at a, a higher rate just from genetic factors. So there's validity to that. Again, but... What I think my ability, my, my, my best 
contribution to this topic is the fact that most people, I would think, that experience the levels of trauma that I have with the different types of abuse that I've suffered under, the broken neck, the over a year in custody as a 16-year-old boy, all the different things that I've suffered under, especially just, just if you just look at the time I spent in custody, the traumas that I experienced there. I was stabbed multiple times. I had to stab multiple people. It was many, many instances of just the most horrific traumas imaginable. And now to me, that's just like run-of-the-mill stuff. I, like, I understand immediate onset trauma of waking up with no memory after my motorcycle accident. I, I understand long-term, slow build-up trauma of, of abuse. I understand all these different ways trauma works, but I understand it not just in an academic way. I, under, and I can understand it in a way that these white lab coat people could never, in a visceral way, in a way, in an experienced emotive way where I can tell them what a person that they're writing about would actually feel. Uh, whereas most people who would have experienced the same levels of trauma that I have are like my friend that I talk about that I see walk by each day. He doesn't recognize me anymore. And some days he does. He'll look at me and he'll just, I see his eyes bulge right out of his head in fear of me when he realizes who I am. And it's like, I cry each time. It's, it's a shame that perhaps more people haven't come to grips with their trauma in the way that you seem to have because it could be such a strong bonding force if there's people like that all around where they can all get together and stand behind things that they know to be true and, and they, they felt themselves and they can stand up against it. It's our only solution. It's the, the current research right now is, is totally all about that. It's it, the addictions that people are the hole that people are filling is that lack of connectivity, that lack of integrity that we can only find through relationships that have that give and take where we don't, it's not like we scare each other into doing better, but we do better for each other. Social facilitation, I believe they call yeah. that in psychology. It's a, it's a big thing as to why community is so important in a world that's more lonely than ever. I mean, you hear about a loneliness epidemic out in BC, Vancouver, where, you know, there's so many people, there's, there's a lot of population density, but almost nobody knows their neighbors, almost nobody really talks to more than a handful of people on a daily basis. And I mean, this city like this probably isn't much better, really. Loneliness is a big thing, too. So many things that you can fix by getting together with people. When I left town at, at 16, I remember the first time I came back and I just had this, this aching feeling inside this, I, I used to get anxiety where I would have like a, a panic attack, but it wasn't a, a, your typical panic attack, I don't think it was more, it was just like an overwhelming sensation of uh, negative and just sad and loneliness and everything all at once. And I would get it every time I would pull back into town. And I still get it every time I come back into town. And I don't think that the people that live here get that feeling because they're obviously habituated to being here, but I definitely have always had it. And everything I've done, every bit of battling that I've battled all these people in the, is in the hopes, not that they'd hate me, 
It's that they finally say you're right, like what you've been saying. So what are the solutions? Let's let's figure it out together, because your mayor, Mayor Campion, ain't going to say shit about the truth, ever. No, none of your council members will ever tell you the truth about the situation, about what's going on here, because the minute they do, you'll vote them out. So guess guess what kind of solutions you're going to find there? None. Seems like the systems and powers that be are always solely designed to keep themselves in order over anything else. So, I mean, whatever the mayor's got to do to keep himself in office and keep all those that depend on him in their places of power. And the money coming in. And, and the, the money poison, coming in. And the poison being stacked ever higher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen, uh, when I was, I, I'm, I was in Venezuela because... I, I, I want to fight a, a, a fight that I consider a, a winning battle. And I actually think that saving Venezuela is, is easier than saving Welland. It's, it's hard because you're right. The situation is that the, the, what I was saying when I first started, the power over the powerless. The people with the power always rig the game for themselves. They, they always want to win. Mm-hmm. And... When I was in Venezuela, I saw that the people don't pay for electricity. They don't pay for water. They don't pay for housing. They pay about a quarter or 50 cents to fill up their gas tank. And we have these debates here saying, oh, look, Venezuela is such a nightmare. There's a lot of problems there, but it ain't a nightmare. This is way more of a nightmare. When I explain to Venezuelan people what we deal with here, what I deal with just out front of, of this place, they... They, they just couldn't believe it. They, they're in utter shock. And they're like, no, we don't want that here. We'll just keep things the way it is, you know. That does make a person like myself want to travel because, I mean, the, the picture that I've seen painted of Venezuela is the bleak place where there's unrest in the streets and it's violent and it's, it's a tricky political situation more than anything. Well, I, I traveled... <laughs> all through Venezuela from the Colombian border all the way to Caracas. I was filming downtown Caracas. I was filming in the subway. All, I rode the subway multiple times. People from Caracas, Venezuelan, carried me up and down the stairs at the spots where the escalator wasn't working, just like in Toronto. But the day, I, the day after I came back, I was attacked in the street in Welland. See, it, it is a stark contrast where you can be safe, or you know, so it seems, in this place and come back and you're not safe like you were. Listen, I, I, I tell them all, I told them all that I spoke to in Venezuela, I feel far, far safer here than I do in any city in the United States. Canada is, I feel a lot safer here, but you're definitely not safe. Those people that are high on methamphetamine right across the street right they can now, do anything. they could just as easily kill you as, as ask you the time. You have no, they have no concept of reality. That man I'm talking about, those people that, are, that used to be my friends, I see him walk by with some wooden shank in his hand once in a while, swinging it in the air. Mm-hmm. If you see him, you need to cross, not just cross the street, turn around and run the other direction. And, and these are two guys that I went to high school with. So what do, what do you think the percentages are of how many people there are? If I went to high school with two of them, that'll likely kill you in a, in a hallucinogenic, ra- drug-induced rage. How many you think are there? A lot. There's no safety here, bro. No. But it's a... I mean, it is a slightly... I mean, it's not hidden. 
because as we've said, we can see it's very easy to find the needles. But it is almost hidden plain, in plain sight. Yeah. Because you look across the street and you see, you know, a pack of eight to ten people standing around with knapsacks on, and hmm. unless you went up close, you'd never be able to tell that they're they're ripped out of their minds. They could be playing Pokemon for all you know. Yeah. So you're right. It is very much hidden unless you know what's going on. Seems to depend maybe. People on drive the... by. It's just like homeless people on the street. They step yeah. right over the person that when they're sleeping on the grates in downtown Toronto, trying to keep warm. So what's the difference? It's another example of cognitive dissonance where you sort of. You just have to ignore. Yeah. It's literally a pain in your brain. You you, you just can't handle it. Or, Every time I talk, people get a pain in their brains and well and There's also the other factor where people tend to think, well, it's not my problem. Somebody who's better equipped to handle the problem will do it, not realizing that they themselves have the power to make a difference. Yes, it's the bystander hypothesis. Yep. We'll, we'll always look to the guy in the white lab coat and you know, assuage our guilt and say, well, buddy's taking, buddy's got it. We're all habituated to look to authority for the most part and have some kind of weird trust and and then it's this you know this patriarchal father figure almost. <laughs> mayor Campion's going to yeah. save Welland. Yeah, people like that makes people Listen, feel safe. If I would have been the mayor, imagine in some alternate universe, if I would have been elected mayor of Welland, things would be a million times better here already. I do just want to say, if you were elected mayor of Welland, I hope you wouldn't have canceled this interview because we've been denied by politicians. So. Oh, yeah. Mayor Campion will never talk to you. He, he avoided me at all costs. I saw him running away with his little penguin legs for me multiple times. God, that guy is... <laughs> okay, so alternate universe. David Clow Mayor, what would have happened? Well, for one, the, all the faces of these front of these buildings would have been done already because I was already in talks with all the owners. The problem is nobody wants to outdo each other because as soon as you do that, as soon as I came into town, this is why none of the other business, the BIA, none of the people would ever, ever talk to me, not even one time, because as soon as people look at me and think, oh shit, that guy's giving away a bunch of stuff out of his own pocket and paying big money, all of a sudden, the onus is on them to start doing that. As it stands right now, everything is a pay-per-use, pay pay-for-play pay situation here in Welland, mm -hmm. which is status quo. It's not an insult, but it ain't, it ain't a solution either. And so right away, had I been uh, somebody that was, say, put up on a pedestal, all of a sudden everybody else would feel that it was their duty to, to start doing some of the same or trying to follow my lead. So of course, to attack me, to vilify me, provides a solution to, to that potential responsibility that onus people would feel upon themselves. That's good. Once, I mean, in the pedestal situation, once you've started the 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 change people typically in that scenario do follow like lemmings <laughs> they'll they they have to to or in order to keep doing their same old day routine. but i also want to it, okay i'm not i'm not trying to say that i'm guilt-free in all this okay since day one when it first started in 2015 with my, my run for member of parliament, I was that Elizabeth May and the Green Party leaders would tell me, 
you got to be sweeter, David. Be sweeter. Be nicer. That's the Green Party way. So I was trying to do it back then. And I was being nice as pie. And it slowly turned into what it is now, where I'm just being blatant, 100% honest, like I am to my friends and family. And the reason why I do that is because the people like the Dr. Guy McPherson's, the Julian Assange's, the, the people that I look up to, they're all sweet as pie. The people that I look up to it, to a lesser degree, like the, the young lady with the autism, like Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd, who I have a love-hate relationship with. I look up to those people, but none of them really have the ability, nor are they in a position to really say it as it is. I've never seen anybody anywhere, uh, you know, I'm friends with Naomi Klein. I'm, I've become friends with all these really awesome people like her along the way that Dr. James Hansen of the Goddard Space Agency, I, he was one of the first people that I went to meet to really understand the truth. I wanted to see what kind of shoes that he was wearing, what kind of car he drives, what the mot his motivation was when I was forming my decision. So I met all these people and all along the way, They've all had the piece of the puzzle that formed the bigger picture that I was looking for, but none of them were really in a position to say or do the things that were requisite. And I still don't know anybody that's really in a position to do and say what's required. Someone that has no fear of anything at all. People have kids, families they, they have to hide from, fear of death, whatever. I have no fear of anything. So I'm in a, I'm in a wonderful position to, to fulfill this duty is a, a freeing idea not to be tied down by any attachments lots of people think well you know if only i didn't have this family or if only i didn't have well, so and so i'm obligation. tied down by this <laughs> it's cute but but not having those big things pulling you in certain directions really lets you do what you actually want to do and to introspect freely as well not just act it's it's all up here I have no barriers up here, so I have no barriers in the real world. That's why I can't let this disability hold me back. That's a good point. A lot of um, really well-respected and, and well-accoladed scientists have a history of perhaps driving the wife crazy or, or whoever else in their lives because they were so they were so perseverant in their cause that they everything else took the back seat. It was. I drive whomever is around me completely crazy. <laughs> My relationships last a maximum of two years. <laughs> There's definitely many factors that make an individual hard to, to be around, but many of them are good things in, in many ways, pushing the boundaries of I'm militant of to the extreme. And I push people so that they push me back but I always push people a little bit too hard to the point where they stop pushing back. And that's everybody except my mom. She was the toughest person I've known and she always pushed back. <laughs> yeah, I need more pushing back. So I'm just gonna keep pushing, hoping I get more pushed back. I, I'd love to find out that even one of the things I believe are not true. That's why I do these missions to Belize and wherever I go to meet these people because I'm praying the whole way there that I'll be wrong. 
so you start with a hunch when you go to these places. You you think there's something going on that's not on the surface. Just like Venezuela. Just like my hunch is my hunch is all rang 100% true. Well, that's with good. regard to this Venezuela issue. I mean, you could be wrong in the I, opposite direction. Where I want to tell you are. another story about a well in person. You have the floor. It was a guy that I that has always volunteered at the hub, and he he feigned things and it, well, he acted like he was a, a friend and helpful. But I had known all along that he was like more of a troll, more of a spy type guy. Just really wanted to know what was going on, you know. And when he, we first started talking about Venezuela, he was like. He was the main person, one of the people that were voicing the thing, saying, Venezuela's a nightmare. You'll, you can't go there. You don't want to go there. It's a socialist horror, right? And so I'm like, yeah, I could go there. I'd be all right. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd survive. But this man believed that if I went, that I would either die or be violently attacked. He believed that in his heart. And he still pushed me to go. And it was that... That's strange. Yeah, and it's that level of maliciousness... I don't know if it's intentional or could be unwitting. I don't know, but it's evil deep down. Yeah. And it's like Welland is, it's, it's that evil is rampant here that it's like passive aggressive to the point where you wouldn't like give someone water if they were on fire, you know? You'd literally, sorry, I don't see you burning. I need this water for later maybe, you know? It's like that's where we're at here. It's interesting to put it in the perspective of being perhaps evil because I could say at the very least my experience in, in other cities like St. Catharines and Thorold, at the very least nobody talks to each other almost. So there's this weird you know thing where nobody you know don't look at each other, don't talk. Nobody's supposed to interact beyond. I told the people commerce. in Venezuela that, and they just can't believe it. They can't believe such a thing exists. Better sense of community, definitely. Listen to this. I got there and I told a young lady in Colombia that I was traveling to Venezuela. She wouldn't let me travel alone. Hmm. She put her newborn baby with her husband and came with me. Hmm. And she introduced me to the members of her church where I met the pastor, a lady pastor, and a university professor. And those two ladies accompanied us. And for the next days, over a week of the next mission, they traveled with me. And they took me directly to the gate at the airport in Caracas. And I said, I told them multiple times how grateful I was and how shocked and amazed. And I said, I wouldn't, not me, but a Canadian person wouldn't even give you the time of day mo in most cases if you ask them, especially with your accent, you know? It's like, but here you've given up your lives completely to protect some guy that's completely diametrically opposed to your viewpoints politically. <laughs> the whole time I was there to convince them to go for Chavez and support their president because America is going to bring them horrors. And they still supported me. There's a lot of interesting conflicts going through my mind right now where, for instance, I, I work with a Costa, a Costa Rican man who has moved to Canada in recent years because he, mostly because he feared for the safety of his, his daughters. And I mean... At, in his, Costa Rica? In Costa Rica. And, and he says that I it's, spent a lot of it's time better there. here. You have, yeah? Yeah, I've been, I, I've been in Costa Rica more than anywhere else. But it strikes me as interesting because, you know, maybe you could go there and say that they're the friendliest people on earth. But They are. But at the same time, it, it, there's people that seem to at least see something in Canada as being valuable and, and, and sociable and I can't think safe. Of, I can't think of one negative thing about Costa Rica other than their uh, facade environmental policies. 
Yeah. It's the most wonderful country. I've heard that violence against women is a more prevalent thing, and I don't know if but the statistics back it up. There's a Me Too movement going on right now in Venezuela, or sorry, in Costa Rica that is, uh, is there, but the level of uh, sexual aggression is different in different cultures. It's very much a, a cultural, cultural relativistic thing, and there's more of it in other places, but I, I wouldn't say that there's more than here. Especially if you start looking at murdered and missing indigenous women, if you start looking at the fact that none of our rapes or missing women are even really investigated. Yeah, that's been a big one, a big talking point for a few years now. So, and if you look at the numbers, I, I, I would have a hard time believing Costa Rica's even in, in, our, in the ballpark of the amount of missing and murdered women we have here. It's interesting. But again, yeah, that's something someone would have to look more into. Yeah. I think Costa Rica is paradise. A lot of <laughs> there's there's so many differing opinions because yes, I mean I'd love to go there and you know stuff like going to the beaches sounds great. This particular man, he says he likes our lakes better, which is funny. Yeah. Nobody around here likes the lakes. No, our lakes <laughs> our lakes are filled with poison and yeah. cyanobacteria from the harmful algal blooms. And I would recommend I wouldn't recommend anyone entering that water at all. Although the algal blooms have been less of an issue ever since phosphorus was taken out of many of the detergents no. that no. we would use, and agri agriculture is still leading to some algal blooms. Well, I'm pretty sure that we're destined for a pretty big one this year again. So, I yeah, be interested to see. The we don't even test for cyanobacteria around here. You so. can see many of the algae depending on what pigments they have. You know, the entire lake could go green. As well, far as when like I first started concerned. my activism, I used to hear about red tide when I was first yep. visiting the, uh, the BP oil spills and the, the dead zones, the sacrifice zones there that are, uh, there's just nothing living in those waters. And I would go to a bunch of places where I would look on the maps and we'd see these little red spots at the mouths of rivers. Mm. So the Mississippi was obviously one big dead zone. And so I started learning more about it and I started seeing that in this low oxygen, high temperature uh, environment, there was invasive species. In, it was uh, jellyfish in, the, in the, uh, the dead zones in the ocean where the red tide was happening. And the red tide is the algal blooms that are containing cyanobacteria, airborne toxic poison that is doing this. And then in the lakes, we have the blue-green algae, which is the analog to in freshwater, and our invasive species here is the Asian carp. So if you look at the situations, they're very much similar, and they've now grown, they're no longer just at the mouths of the rivers, they've completely, uh, they're completely all around the entire edge of the entire uh, continent, uh, the North American continent. I, so. I do know that there is lots of red tide issue in the Gulf of Mexico. But and our lakes are full of Asian carp, even though no one wants to admit it. A uh, really good book out right now, it's called Overpopulation, I think it's, uh, a Canadian guy actually wrote it about uh, the actual state of the Asian carps here in our lakes. Interesting topic, but $10 billion a year industry in these Great Lakes, that's about to uh, founder. There are many, The I don't know if it's Asian carp, but it, it's a couple different types of carp, but there's lots of more visual representations of it in the Mississippi River where people have, you know, they're going through in their boat and they're getting, you know, carp flying through the air and hitting people yeah. and, and things like that. You don't see that here. It's a lot of the, a lot deeper 
in the water. Although fishermen could tell you about yeah, it. Yeah, the fishermen are, uh, that's the documented evidence we're getting. <clears throat> it's just fishermen take a photo with their cell phone and hand it in. And mm -hmm. They, you know, we have electric fences in the river that are supposedly keeping the carps out, but it's, they're already through. It's, there's, most of these situations are no longer preventable. These things that we're talking about. We're dealing with them at this point. It's yeah. feeling the effects of reality. Dr. Guy McPherson, when I went and visited him, took up an example, and I wanted to show you guys this before we, we end this interview. Sure. He, he said, imagine I was holding, so imagine this is a glass of water. Okay. A, a clear glass. And inside the glass, it's full of ice cubes. So say there's about 10 or so ice cubes in the glass. And the water temperature, and say the sun is shining on it, the water temperature in the glass is gonna be about zero or 0.5 degrees Celsius. Yep. The ice inside the glass is going to be absorbing a huge amount of radiation from the sun, heat. So it's going to be the, the he, I can't remember the name of the equation, but there's a conversion rate, right? So as the ice melts, the temperature is still going to maintain at zero or 0.5 degrees to the point where you got just a little baby ice cube left. Yep. That ice cube is going to be absorbing the exact same amount of energy that all the ice was. So it's going to be melting Fast. exponentially faster. As that, uh, when that ice disappears, the, what it was absorbing, the energy that it was absorbing is now gonna go into the water. Globally, that ice is the, that we have in our glass, as part of the analogy, is that the Arctic ice is the ice in the glass. The Arctic ice is the global air conditioner in the way that this ice in the glass was maintaining that temperature. Once it's gone, that energy is still gonna be, continue to be absorbed but now in the water. But the, now the temperature of the water is no longer to be zero or 0.5, it's gonna skyrocket. And what happens then, in a very short amount of time, is that our society is not gonna be able to, our civilization is not gonna be able to maintain our food systems, and we're not gonna be able to feed ourselves, and there's going to be Chaos, not the good chaos, the bad chaos. Some of the explanation of that is the currents that circulate the ocean would be disrupted at that point. That's the, the crux of it. Which yeah, there's going to be all kinds of different feedback. They're called forcings. The different things that... So most scientists, most people who are experts are going to know, be experts in one type of forcing, whatever it may be. I, I, I went and visited Dr. Guy McPherson because he's expert at more than most, I would say he speaks about like 60 different climate forcings, I think, and is very familiar with them also. Very few people have as extensive a, a, a knowledge with regard to climatology as he does. So, yeah, his opinion is one that we ought to be listening to. But again, when someone gives you information like that, even myself, I've had a lot of cognitive dissonance with regard to the information he's given me, and I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe that we're only going to be here for less than a decade or even, you know, a few years. That, that kind of thing obviously is horrifying to hear, but... A lot of people might deal with that by perhaps taking themselves out of the game. You sort of... If you don't worry about it as much and you just see something happening, happening around you, well, people flip the telly on and they watch, watch their favorite program. Which might be the, yeah, that's the escapism side of it. But if you're not being an escapist and you're coming to terms with, well, this is happening, perhaps you can detach yourself from it and not feel the fear. Well, when I first meet people, they're always like, okay, well, thank you for 
ruining my my <laughs> my my whole psyche my whole view of the future and then that's the point where i always say but but no stop don't it, it, celebrate it put a smile back on your face because this is wonderful because we don't have to keep living in this shit we don't have to keep following these same rules we've been following that brought us here we can potentially arrive at some kind of salvation some redemption we can as emma goldman would say we can dance with the revolution we can celebrate it instead of being sad about it so what welling should be doing right now is coming out saturday night to this show and saying let's listen to some punk music who cares that things are tough let's all be out in the parking lot at the hub and the people the meth heads that are usually tramp tripping around they'll go somewhere else because we'll outcompete it we'll have too much happiness too many smiling faces there for them to be able to accept the situation nobody's going to be stabbing needles in their veins if somebody's watching them if people are there doing fun stuff we'll go somewhere else so and that's the problem we don't have any of those good things so people figure they can just stay i'd be curious to know what the drug problem is like in toronto because that is a city that has a lot of community organ organization relative to here there's a lot of things that get good funding lots of you know parades for everything Lots of things in the street, street getting shut down yes. for many events. It's it's a different thing. If what you're saying is true, it'd be interesting to compare well into Toronto on a per capita basis. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, that's exactly... So a lot of the ideas that I put forth during my mayoral campaign were stuff that the World Economic Forum provides. So they provide plans or inf infrastructure ideas, how to make changes for the future. <laughs> about all kinds of different stuff and there's all kinds of different NGOs and even government bodies that provide us information so yeah there's a ton of things we should be doing when I hear the mayor talk about this needle issue every time there's something going on in the news he's like oh yeah we're on that we're working on that it's like the same bullshit he says every time like give us something what do you mean you're working on it what does that mean we're looking into it the the city's gonna prepare a report are they going to follow uh, people around and collect the needles as, as they get you? Again, I don't know what the exact solutions are. My ideas for, for drugs would be to get the dealers off the street. I'm, I'm a hard-hitting guy. I, I would, if I had been mayor, I would be continuing doing what I do, what was doing, putting my life on the line to actually go out and call these people out. And I'd say, let's, you know, we know where these guys are. Let's set up a, a community watch program where we're just walking up and down the street. And if something's going on there, we'll take photos and send them into the cops. If they don't like it, too bad. That's what we're doing because our kids, our children are dying in the streets. Some people might argue that the police in the city are too busy for a lot of things. And they are driving around constantly. I, I don't know if you, oh, busy's fuck. the right word. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a weird thing. I wouldn't call it busy either. There's too much dysfunction in that system for it to ever be reformed. Again, I think that the solution to all of our problems is arrived at in the exact way that I keep referring to. It, it's in community oversight, it's in community involvement, it's in unity, it's in working together, mm -hmm. town hall meetings, coming up with solutions together. Those were all the ideas that I was putting forth, but it's not happening now, I know that. There's, I see a little pockets of, of some success where people are trying to do bottom-up stuff and and try and turn things around but 
it sounds like you really should set up an environment where you could run for mayor again, <laughs> honestly. And I don't know what your intentions are, but no. I'd like to see you do that. That would be very interesting from my point of view. Well, yeah, yeah I'm sure it would be very, very interesting, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, I'm definitely never going to be running for politics again. The reason, okay, the reason why I did the things I've done, uh, part of the, I brought up deep green resistance before. It's a, it's a, it's a political movement. It's an environmental group that's trying to save the planet. And uh, there's three, three duties that you have as a person who wants to protect the planet uh, and the the humans and the non-human animals as well alike. And you have to do three things. You have to be as vocal as you can about what you know. Scream from the rooftops. Mm -hmm. I've been doing that. You have to, secondly, run for local political office. And thirdly, you have to create a space to foster the resistance. So I fulfilled all my duties to the utmost and I have no guilt. I will die, I will move forward with no guilt about what I've done here in Welland. And I've ruffled a lot of feathers, like I told you before the interview started. I'm not here to blow smoke up people's ass. I'm here to light a fire under their ass. I'm here to, to rock the boat and that's what I've done. And not everybody gets it and I never expected they would. But no one knows me here. None of these people in the city, a handful of people know me. As I said, the people that talk about me are talking about a 16-year-old kid that used to fight in the Notre Dame parking lot. They don't, they don't know me. It's crazy, especially since there's no new, since you left around 16, that they're all just painting this picture of you from memories that are just so far gone. Mm -hmm. And... It's unfortunate because people obviously do change. You said you've you've went through a lot and Oh yeah, but I'm still a dick. I'm, you know, I, there's no disputing that. Like I'm honest. I and if I like I wouldn't call it a dick because the only people that I respect are people like me. The only people that I enjoy spending time with are people like me. Because who wants to be around someone that's constantly lying to you? If, you know, if you got some something in your teeth, your friend will say you got something in your teeth. If you stink, your friend will tell you you stink. If there's a dirty needle sticking out of your foot, your friend will tell you there's a dirty needle sticking out of your foot. That's where we're at now. I'm, I've been Welland's friends, and, but I'm not going to be anymore. I, I think that my responsibilities lie somewhere else. I think that my path is taking me somewhere else. And We'll see. My mom used to always ask me why I do these things, why I sacrifice my time and my money and hurt myself. I have two broken ribs and I think my shoulder's broken. I go for a bunch of x-rays tomorrow. I'm hurt right now. I should have been traveling through Venezuela and doing all the stuff that I was doing and I keep doing it. And my mom would say, why do you do that? No one cares, no one's listening. And I said, they're listening. They're, they're watching from a distance. And I said, eventually, I'm gonna re reach a point where I'll prove to enough people that what I'm saying is right and they'll start listening and I'm really hoping that eventually people will start listening and had there been someone else saying what I'm saying then I wouldn't feel the responsibility to do so but I just don't hear it and I don't see it and 
until I do, I'll keep doing what I'm doing until I don't have any more bones to break or uh, breath left in my lungs. And I have no, I'm not going to have a wife or children or uh, a future like most people envision. I'm fulfilling my dreams. I'm doing what I always dreamt of doing. I've, I want to become what I was supposed to become with my life. And I don't know of or have ever heard of anyone that has ever said that and actually done that and worked toward doing those things, fulfilling their dreams. Most people I know give up or transform or mm. find an excuse for their inability to do so. And Arguably, that's the problem. most people do, but I think the people that do follow their dreams and do get what they're looking for in life would be in the category of self-actualized people and I'd like to follow those people myself. And I think that maybe they're more plentiful than some people might might give them credit for. But it, it's as simple as maybe philosophers that are on, you know, social media at this point. People that are putting forth ideas and they're, they're just, you know, thinking all day long. Or perhaps some, you know, every university's got a couple professors that are really pushing the boundaries of their research. And they are definitely doing what they want. Mm -hmm. Of course, with all the restrictions at play, because <laughs> there's lots of you know board meetings and, and so and so about what you can and cannot do as far as research is, but but I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of people that have that passion. I do too. I do too. And I just think that we need to get those people together, yeah. get them on the same page and working together. Because sadly, they don't. Like I was telling you about the two, the, those two guys, Doctor Guy and Derek Jensen. They. They think each other are like federal agents or something out to get each other. It's almost <laughs> a kind of paranoia once you're so oh, deep into the game. It's super paranoia. Who, who can you trust, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, I, I don't trust anybody. I didn't trust you guys. I, not for one second did I trust you guys. I thought for sure that you would be different than you are, but I was prepared for... Uh, but no matter... If, say you were like some trolls here to try and, you know, troll me. I would have still given you all the exact same answers, so... Fair All way. we do is we talk to people and we post the results. No, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm very grateful because I really wanted the opportunity for what you've provided, just an objective stumble in and find out what's going on. That's what we do a lot. At least me. I, I stumble into things. I don't research the hell out of most. most I, I do a little bit of research just to make sure we know what we're doing, but we do try to be as objective with, with you. We got a little less objective on the internet side of things, but there obviously was so much more than what the what Facebook memes. You have could feel to, that there's a story to be told. Yeah, that's for sure. And we surprise. Well, I don't know if it's surprising, but we do get a lot of compliments on how conversational it is. Like we try not to come at it from any any judgmental way, unless you're. We've had a few situations where people have been just talking like complete and utter completely wrong bullshit and we have I just want to say something one final thing say two final things and it was it was something that I I don't like to talk about because obviously I brought it up a few times because I've had to so far and it was uh, it was the abuse that I suffered under here uh, it was a the guy in the video called me a pedophile and everyone that knows me knows I'm not a pedophile my my sexual interests are rather obvious it, any scroll through my Facebook page will see who I spend my time with. Uh, and so I have nothing to hide. But 
it hurts so bad to hear someone say that and for it to have people believe that because when I came back in 2015 to care for my, my mother, my godfather, who was the man who abused me as a young boy, uh, I saw a photo of him on Facebook holding another little boy that looked just like me. And it was at his first communion and he had big brown eyes like me and the little boy was holding a gift bag just like I held at my first communion. And I picked up the phone and I called the police and I said, I don't know what happens next, but this pedophile is still operating with impunity like for probably four decades now and we need to do something about it. So I did something about it. And he was, uh, I went, I was testifying, I testified for two days in court and the trial went on for about three years and he uh, was sentenced to 10 years in custody. Uh, he just died after about a year. He fell and bumped his head apparently uh, in, in Millhaven Penitentiary and he just died about a month ago. Uh, so that, that story, that part of my life is over. And I'm no longer tethered to that man the way that I was. And I feel just released. I feel liberated. I feel a sense of... I don't know, just release from it all, finally, after all these years, in a way that, and it's just given me a, such a sense of strength that I can't describe. I'm and glad that you're telling the story, because this is something that people need to hear. And the reason why I'm saying it is because you have to speak out. Yes. You can't stay quiet. You can't say, oh, shh, 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 don't talk about that. Because when I told my mother, who was dying of cancer, she said, Oh my God, David, you can't tell anybody that. And I had to go against my mother's dying wishes to publicly go against this man and get him off the streets. And I had no choice but to do so. And I just want everyone to do the same thing. I want you all in Welland to do the same thing. And I want you to never ignore the things that are a problem because they'll never go away otherwise. We'll never be able to keep people safe Unless we talk about it, unless we call it out and just say what it is, as it is, when it is, and then this community might have a hope. If, if in five or ten years from now, someone says to me, David, come back home to Welland because things have changed and you might want to run for mayor, perhaps I would then. There's no way in hell I'm running for mayor in the next election. This city will never transform in time because there's no leaders. There's no one willing to take on what I took on. There's no one willing to take the hits. And you try to find someone who's more articulate, more educated or intelligent than I am to try to take on this role. It'd be a tricky thing to find. Most people who are very articulate, very intelligent, have these cushy positions, whatever they're doing, and they feel, you know, I shouldn't interfere or... That's what I mean. There's, there's always, too much to risk. There's always some obligation. Yep. You know, children at home is always, mo in most cases, the key factor that keeps people from risking their day jobs. Hmm. And so you have been lucky. If you, you want to call it that. One question. Yes, please. You had mentioned it and we're, we spent a good chunk of this interview talking about uh, community involvement being kind of an important thing. And you mentioned the baptism, so it's a good it's a good thing to ask. There's it could be a big thing to ask. There's obviously major issues with certain religions and whatnot. The Catholic Church has had its its, it's own, share of controversy. Its share of controversy. But where do 
you stand on the religious spectrum. You're a very introspective guy. You, you, you talk. You said your mother's in heaven. The anarchism uh, sways more towards the non-religious affiliation side of it. Listen, I've, I, when I was getting my philosophy degree, I studied theology each year, uh, uh, and I was we were taught by a priest. The professor was a priest in in the seminary. We would do classes across from Western Ontario at the seminary. And uh, I searched for God. I always wanted to find God. The only evidence I ever found for God was Kierkegaard said, for there, nothing can exist ex, from nothing, ex nihilo. So for something to exist, there must be something that exists behind, the, so, so something to designate with the word. And for there to exist the word faith, there must be something that we can have faith in contrary to or without evidence. That struck me then, but it wasn't enough. And even though I was an altar boy and grew up Catholic and was always and had all that internalized belief system within me, I, don't, I never believed in God. I never followed anything you would consider religious. To this day, or to the day before I left for Venezuela, I was completely against religion in every way. I just thought that Sure, it would help the uneducated masses, but the trade-off, the, the violence and hurt and hatred that it produces uh, as well isn't really worth the benefit that it provides, or, or I thought it may not be. But traveling through Venezuela changed all that. I, before I left, I used to always wear this. This is my mother's ashes. I used to always wear it with the cross to my chest so that no one would see it. And before I left, I thought, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna leave on this trip purposely opposed to the idea of something that I know those people believe in. And I just felt like it was like, to be closed-minded to do so. Not that I'm gonna start believing in God or anything, but I just wanted to do that. And when I arrived, I don't know if it was God or religion or what, but something touched me and I changed drastically and it was experiencing the love and affection and caring from these women like I was referring to, how they protected me, how these people, I was bawling my eyes out every day just from like feeling not good enough. And the, the male pastor who was praying for me and talking to me, he knew things he couldn't have known. Like, and he wasn't deducing them like some fortune teller with a crystal ball or whatever because I wasn't giving him anything. And he just knew things. He was, again, I'm not saying he was speaking through the Lord or whatever. The Lord wasn't speaking through him or whatever, but he had a sense of things and he was definitely connected to something that I am not. And he knows things that I don't, and especially about me, which was the weird thing. And hmm. I was changed and I just felt a connection to whatever that is. Sounds and, a bit like a, a shaman or somebody that is like a spiritual leader in a community that sort of sits on the outskirts and... and has the time to introspect with it himself and, and maybe that translates into empathy and, and seeing something in you to understand your situation. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. I couldn't speak for a long time and I think that that's what accentuated my skills of intuition which were already rather robust. Like the time I spent in the hospital on the breathing <clears throat> machines and with the uh, things drilled in my head and all that. So it was like I couldn't talk or represent what I really wanted to. but. Yeah, I guess when you're in that position where you utilize those skills, they become 
more robust, almost extrasensory. Uh, extra mm. And uh, that's definitely what I experienced, but it was, it was the, the most wonderful thing that I've ever experienced outside of a connection with nature and animals that, I, that you just don't experience here. You talk a lot about the connection with animals. Could you go fur into further detail about that? Well, I was always afraid of animals and afraid of everything, bugs, worms, whatever. Like, it was always something that I knew to be separated from because it's just not safe. And then traveling the world and being around animals for the first time was a very easy experience. And it was like, people are like, why are you so weird, you know? So once I tried to work against that, I realized how truly important it is to connect with nature and animals and to have that eco it's eco psychology is a really new burgeoning field in psychology where people you hear you see memes on Facebook where the doctor is prescribing someone an hour in nature or whatever you know but it's definitely instrumental to there's something to it yeah there's no disputing it at all after a month in Costa Rica where I go and stay which is basically in the rainforest jungle on the beach it's like after 30 days being there, I'm back to being the human I'm supposed to be, as opposed to the dis disconnected, disintegrated person that we all are here in, these, in this type of society. Some corrupting force about the concrete world we've made and, and all the separation of the What's walls. What's the concrete world? It's the <laughs> advertising. It's everything so it's a lot else of your I just, I just downloaded a book. So I forget what it's called. It's, something about, it's about the history of concrete. And it's this exact topic. So huh. look forward to reading that. Of how it changes urbanization. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a dewilding, right? It's yep. where I always look for everything that I'm always looking for the root of the problem. This guy that grabbed me in the street, I wanted to kill him. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to stab him. I wanted to, I wanted to grab him and, and hurt him. But I don't want to hurt him. He's just a product of, of drugs and this life and this fucked up community. So I don't hate him. I don't have anything against him at all. I don't care that he makes memes every day making fun of me. I feel sorry for him. But... I don't hate the people that I used to fight. I don't hate the man that abused me. I didn't hate him before he died. I didn't hate anything. I hate what created it all. So I've always been looking for the root of the problem. And if you look back in history, and it, you can see when we started doing things like writing down who owed what, and when we started looking at people as a, a means of arriving at a, a commodity, that we didn't have before, we, re we moved from being like bees and ants and being natural things that work you know, in a, a eusocial situation, an altruistic relationship where we're helping each other. We moved toward this competitive thing that we're dealing with now where we hate each other. We, we, we don't want to even, we just want to out, outdo one another. And it's this, it's this idea that there's, not really much left and we got to take whatever we can really fast before this is why i really hated vegas when i first started going there i love it now just because i have friends there and stuff but i really hated it at first because i everybody i'd look in the eye i'd be they i'd get this sense that they're trying to make something off me like i'm about to 
like I was some kind of wager or something, you know? And it's like that it was very much descriptive to me of what we all experience here, which is like, you know, what are you gonna, what are you gonna give me? What do I get from you out of this deal, you know? Relationships are a lot like that here, I sense. This is why the, the women in Venezuela, they're like, oh, tell us about Canadian girls. I'm like, oh, I, I'm done with Canadian girls. I, I wanna marry a Venezuelan girl. And I was saying it just as a joke, but it's absolutely true. Hmm. I, I have no interest whatsoever in dating any Canadian women, definitely not a Welland woman. And it's like, no offense to anybody uh, purposely, but... I mean, if they take offense, of course, no big deal. You're not going after Welland women anyway. I just haven't met anybody who's really got their head on straight. It's like, it's like gangster rap girls or like, or people that have like devoted their lives to drugs or they're in some kind of a counter abusive relationship still. It's like all these issues like I talk about that people just can't remove themselves from. And it's like it goes further than that. I mean, you could go to a university like when I was there, I, I saw a lot of people, not just women, men and women, but people that are very self absorbed. I mean, they don't have any of the social problems that you might be talking about here because they're from well-off families they grew up fine they don't have a you know abuse problems but yeah being so self-centered like many of these people are isn't attractive either it's, it's hard to find somebody that isn't hung up on something the first thing i do whenever i make a friend or a potential girlfriend is and i do it to my male friends as well it's not a, a gender thing but i i offer them a book i give people books i have many 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 electronic books like um and uh, so i send them in, in the email and i see if they'll read them and i i don't know anybody that reads books i really don't and really? maybe i'm just maybe i'm just like a shitty person and i attract <laughs> shitty people but i don't know anybody there i know people read but i'm not talking about dean Koontz or something like that or you no. know some danielle Steele. i'm talking about books like nonfiction. i know for a fact that we're jesse and i are both prolific readers. He yes. has a massive bookshelf and I listen to a lot of audiobooks myself. Wonderful. I'm a reader, writer, just everything. Well, that that makes you a rare individual, I suspect. Well, thank because you. Because I just don't know anybody that reads and it's like I would never have been able to speak the way I I'm speaking now without all the books I've read and when I was in high school here in Welland, people used to think I was just some dumb fighter dude. And everyone would always make fun of me for being dumb. And I'd actually let people believe that I was dumb just because it was a lot easier for me. I never had to meet anybody's demands, you know? And, but they took me out of elementary school when I was here in well in grade four and put me in an enriched classes going from grade four to eight. So I had known that I was intelligent, but I just accepted being dumb because it was easier and it's... interesting I, I know a lot of people might well I, I do know a few people that do the, the playing dumb sort of thing and it does get you what you want sometimes <laughs> it really depends you're not the responsible one when when things turn shitty anyways yeah. in that case you know even you as something have... as simple as you go to Home Depot and you don't you pretend like you don't know anything because you are looking for some some kind of answer some kind of help well, I wouldn't be able to help you at Home Depot anyways but yeah no like I, I know like one or two in the, in the year that I've been here back in Welland just recently, this most recent time here since the, with the election period up until now, I've spoke to a handful of women who've 
tried to talk to me or whatever. And I, I, one of them was a university student, and, or so she said, but again, it's like, I don't know. It, it's hard when you, you want someone to be educated or intelligent and you put too big of a demand on someone or you put too much on people and they just don't meet your expectations and it becomes difficult. I dated intelligent. I went, I had a fairly long term ish relationship with somebody who was university Brock, like uh, masters and whatnot. And she was such a mixed bag of intelligence. <laughs> she was like one of the, you aside, one of the most book smart people I know. Um, but in almost every other way, conversations and everything, it was I, I like a good mix in my intelligence. You can be book smart, but you can hold a conversation, yeah, which is nice. I'm just looking for someone that I can ask a question and get a, an answer that I can have a little bit of faith in. Yeah. And I just haven't, in today's society, I just haven't met anybody really, you know. In all these years, I haven't met anybody that I consider someone that I would want to continue spending my time with. The last girl I dated, I'm lying actually, the last girl I dated, um, right when my mother died, was that girl. She was, uh, we used to read together, like for fun, on a Friday night we'd sit around and just read Sounds to each nice. other and it's like, she was great, but I was just like, when my mother died I turned into a really angry guy for about a year and uh, I was, I couldn't, couldn't have any physical touching or any kind of Attend, affection of any kind at all without feeling an overwhelming sense of guilt and uh, so I basically pushed her away so <laughs> I'm very sad about that still somewhat but yeah relationships are a tricky thing yeah and especially doing what I do you know I, I hold people accountable and very few people want that so all I have left to myself like I said to you I have no intention of being married or having kids or anything like that my everything all my rewards in life arrive at fulfilling my duty, what I consider my obligation at this point. I've led a wonderful life and I'm extremely, even though I use a wheelchair, I'm extremely, extremely grateful for every single thing that's ever happened to me, good and bad, because it's brought me to where I am today. And I truly believe that I'm happier than anybody, I am happier than anybody I know, but I believe that I'm happier than most. When I wake up in the morning and I have my first coffee, I'm singing and laughing to myself about the silliest things and I laugh and play with my dogs. I'm extremely, extremely happy person, which is something I would think that people wouldn't know about me given my online persona. I'm very, well, I always seem to be talking about the most saddest, darkest topics, but now they know. Yeah, yeah this, this is one of the great things about doing something like this. I think this is a good point to wrap the show up because I think we've painted an interesting picture. You've said so many interesting things really i didn't know what to expect going into this the well, reason why i asked the religious question was because my religious opinion is it's at its best good when it's a gathering of people right like you take the especially all the molesting and everything out yes. of the equation <laughs> you take that out of it but yeah religion does facilitate that everything but has what you're doing cuts. here the original idea of having a free place a gathering place well, that's what the final is point, needed let me tell you that then, where i got this idea was from i traveled to an event in southern florida uh, about five or six years ago 
and we, the main meeting place was at a place called the Church of Color. And it was an old church that was no longer about religion and molesting little boys like it probably <laughs> once was. It was now a church of art where you could find that spiritual connection, but without the scripture being the guiding premise behind it all, it was just the idea of facilitating art and connectivity and community and all those amazing things. And it ended up, ended up being a, the vibrant, pounding heart of this little community that ended up taking over a, a local uh, uh, grocery chain and putting their own co-op grocery store there. And then they had a, a you know, a big, huge uh, community garden where they were feeding themselves and able to sell uh, all their vegetables and food at a super low rate. It was just, and a bunch of other places popped up like a organic coffee shop and a little restaurant there and all these other different wonderful things. And that's what I envisioned Welland to be. When I first got back here and I met them across the street, I'm like, it's going to be awesome. This is the second place now downtown where it's going to be, you know, an art little place. And I'm going to bring business that to downtown for you guys. And all they wanted to be was adversarial against me from the beginning and try to have me removed from this location and uh, phoning the fire department and the building inspector and my owner, the owner of the property constantly trying to have me removed from this property still to this day for countless different reasons all all of those attempts were futile everything about what i've done here has been straight straight up and all according to what i had to do i tried to keep it to the bare minimum i this i didn't have millions of dollars to spend on this place but it's completely safe according to fire code and i did all the things that are required all the things that people tried to use against me and say about me I've proven them all wrong but yet all that does is make them more adamant to fight against it so mm -hmm. that they because nobody wants to admit that they were wrong about this place an investment into the argument yeah. so now what happens with the hub what happens with David Clow and Welland I have no idea guys the future is the answer I have a lot of plans I have a lot of objectives I have two books that I've written that I'm about to have published I have this Venezuela documentary and another documentary that I've been working on for nine years that I'm about to finally have put out. And it's just been, uh, everything has in my life has all led up to this point. So this is a very, to say it's a crossroads is an understatement. So I have a lot going on and a, definitely too much to ever think about having a political future anytime soon. It's I'm okay, still, I'll keep my hopes up. I'm still relatively <laughs> young. And I think perhaps if I were to come back as an accomplished older person more respect gravitated towards you i'm sure and yeah once i lose that chip on my shoulder that i still have a bit of but <laughs> i'm a wellander and we all have that chip on our shoulder so that's what i don't understand as well it's like people hate me because i'm them it's like you have the same fucking chip enjoy it take pride in the fact that we have the same chip on our shoulders but i guess mine's a little too rough <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you so much. It's been um, great. Yeah. So, I, I don't know what else to say. This, this <laughs> has been amazing. Thank so, you. So, have a good week, everybody. I think this one's getting released out of order, but we will uh, see you next week. Goodbye, Welland. Bye, everybody. <laughs>